This program is supported by Altus Learn. Did you know that 89% of employees say, if my employer invested in my training, I'm more likely to stay with the organization long-term? An Altus Learn Imaging Campus has the required education for imaging centers to meet annual ACR, IAC, and Joint Commission requirements for radiation and MRI safety and CT dose reduction. An imaging campus not only provides the annual required education, but also provides the imaging center techs with access to over 200 CEs, which are accepted by the ARRT. Including CEs published on the RADCAST podcast, imaging technologists can track all of their CEs through the CE wallet, and imaging center leaders can check the compliance status of each of its team members. Learn more at the bottom of RADCAST.com and click on Get a Campus. So we're going to welcome everybody to um, this live version of Turner Talks, and we've got the whole gang back together um, from our other COVID talks that we did. We've done two previously and reach a really wide audience. So we've had almost a thousand participants in those two sessions and are expecting a really big crowd today as well um, as we talk about burnout. So one thing that I do um, want to say before we get started is that we want to be very conscious and respectful of differing experiences. We don't all have these same experiences. We're not all going through the same stuff, but I do want to keep in mind that professionally, there are some things that kind of seem to, to be across the board for all of us. So while we um, remain conscious and like I said, respectful of different experiences, because right now we seem to really be at a point of, of great stressors, um, both professionally and personally. So we do want to, um, you know, remain cognizant of that, but also reach across across the lines because there are some things professionally that affect all of us. Um, as Jordan usually does, we've got the disclaimer that the things we talk about here are really our ideas and our opinions and our perceptions of what we're discussing and that we're not responsible for what you may take back and do with this information. So um, use this information wisely. Uh, so I think you know everybody on the panel. Um, Jordan, Dusty, and myself are from the Deep South. So I was already commenting about how blazingly hot it is right now. And then Mary was saying she was a little chilly, so she had to go out in the sunshine. So um, you've seen this all before, so we're going to dig into this topic of COVID and burnout. And we're really going to focus on the burnout side. So my therapy friends know that that is my area of research and study is um, burnout, coping, stressors, and how those chaotic environments may lead to patient errors or um, you know, some, may um, affect patient safety. I did an article a couple of weeks ago with CareStream, and it was the first part of a burnout series. The second part of that burnout series is going to come out next Tuesday. So if you want to read those blogs, they are on carestream.com. But we'll put that stuff up on our um, social media pages. So let's dig in to burnout. And um, what does burnout mean to you, Jordan? Burnout, I mean, I think it means so many th different things to different people, but I mean, really to me, what burnout is, is you've, you've hit either a plateau or a brick wall. It doesn't mean you've hit like the pinnacle at the highest peak, but you've hit some kind of plateau, some kind of brick wall um, that's affecting you uh, physically, mentally, personal health, 
relationships around you, uh, performance at work, um, that you're not you're not you're no longer optimized to where you were. Um, and so that's my definition. That's how what kind of what it means to me. So before we get into the research behind this, I'm just going to ask both you, Dusty and Mary, off the top of your head, if you could name the top three um, contributors to burnout, the top three stressors in a professional environment. Mary, what would you say would you think are the top three stressors? I think their lack of things, their lack of communication, lack of action, lack of progress. Anytime where you're emitting energy and continually pouring yourself into things and you, there's no tangible result, then that that would be for me, that would that would push me to the edge where, you know, I'm burnt out, I don't want to do this anymore because I can't grasp anything that I'm that I'm really doing. And Dusty, what would you say if you were just off the top of your head, what three things would you say are, are contributors to burnout in a professional setting? Um, I agree with Mary as well. Um, as far as, you know, you also have to intertwine your personal life with that professional setting. So I think especially during this time, a lot of our personal commitments, our families and juggling those things have been stressors for me um, and, and making me feel a little bit more burnout in a situation just because I'm juggling more than I'm typically juggling. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kick this off, Ted, if you want to get that very first poll question up there. What we're going to ask you is, where do you, how would you measure yourself? So to the audience, how would you measure yourself on your current state of professional burnout? And you see there's kind of a scale there. Um, you're either not burned out at all, or you're doing pretty good. You think you're handling things, or maybe you feel burned out most days of the week, or that last one is you're just you're done you're totally fried and you know maybe you feel like you're at your tipping point um because like dusty said sometimes your per personal things roll over into into the professional and um you know it affects it affects your whole well-being because an increase in burnout is going to decrease your well-being so um, vote on that real quick and let's see Let's see where everybody feels. Let's, let's just get a good place to start. Let's get a good foundation here and see where everybody thinks they are. Ted, I can't see the percentages like I usually do. So when you think it's about, um, when you think most everybody has voted, if you'll close that, then we'll go through the answers. So it looks like most everybody, I'm happy to see that very, very, very few of you are totally fried, but it looks like for the most part, everybody feels like they're doing pretty good in spite of everything else that's going on right now. Um, and about a third of you are, you know, you're really feeling, you're feeling the effects of this and that happens most days of the week. So, and kudos to the 6% up there who's not burned out at all. I love, I love the way you're handling all of this. So, um, okay. So we asked what contributes to burnout. And if you look at um, research that's been done, there was a current, I mean, a, a study that was just done um, where they were looking at, and uh, Mary and Dusty, when we get a little deeper into this, I'm going to ask you specifically about it, but they were looking at students and how students perceived burnout in radiation therapy, in a radiation therapy department, and what the students said is they thought that 80% of radiation therapists were burned out, so 80%. 
that's their perception. 80% of radiation therapists are burned out. If you look at other research, it's, a, it's somewhere in that 70 to 75 range. So about three quarters of radiation therapists exhibit burnout to the point whether they feel it or somebody else notices it in them. So what leads to this burnout? And we've already kind of asked some of those, these questions. And um, Jordan, I'll start with you because one of the major contributors to burnout is ineffective, inattentive, um, and kind of back to Mary's point, things you can't get your hands around is management. So Jordan, what do you think management's role is in burnout? How do they, let's start with this. How does management contribute to burnout? I mean, I think management, the key to management is being able to, to manage what the employees need to uh, be aware of, be included in. Um, too much of that may distract them. The other thing that we really see is if you convey um, a ton of things to these to the to the staff, oftentimes it becomes we call it the flavor of the month initiative, right? So you want them to do this this month, but now we have a new goal and objective and a direction next month, and it becomes too much, and this kind of stuff. Um, leads to burnout. The other thing is really the culture set and the culture set of a manager sets the culture of how communication works. Um, are there teams? Are there divisive lines in the department? Those need to be eliminated. Do we feel like there's open lines of communication? All those things are and boundaries are set by management. What's tolerated, what we're held accountable for, all that has to be balanced and kept in check. Um, and that leads to either a faster burnout, a prolonged burnout. You can gauge how much road burnout has um, based on those factors, and the management uh, controls that. So, Mary, I'm going to ask you because something else that's stated in this whole kind of management administration thing is the rigid hierarchy. So, um, you know, we've heard it said before that people on the front lines feel like oftentimes decisions are made by people who don't understand what they're really doing. People who don't understand the job roles, don't understand all the stress that goes in the job, don't really understand what all's going on on the front lines. So how do we address this hierarchy? Because everybody's got a boss. You know, even your boss has a boss, has a boss, has a boss. So how do we, how does that affect us? How does that trickle down affect us? And then how might we address some of this hierarchy or how do we get our points across to management to take to an executive level maybe? I think the first thing that you need to do is I am a firm believer in chain of command. I, I believe in that. And I think if you're ever really gonna get to the top of somewhere, if someone is a really effective leader, they're gonna ask you first, where have you been? How did you get here? So that's the, that's the first thing that I think is really important there. Two, I think that type of mentality is like, um, Jordan talked about the, the cultural factor of it. You know what I mean? And um, how, sorry, that's my phone. I forgot to undo it, um, I apologize. <laughs> so um, I know I have to bring like what, cookies or bars or what is that? Like, <laughs> next time I come. Um, so anyways, I think that's, you have to bring a solution to people like that too. Um, if you just, um, I know like that Jordan's um, piss and moan comment got a lot of, of attention. Um, and so I read something the other day that says you have to piss and moan with perspective. And I'm like, I like that. 
Um, I get that. So I think first, if you started your lower level manager, you bring them, you address an occur concern, but you bring a solution. And then, um, like I said, the culture is really important in that. There's a, a cultural model. If you study a lot of culture, there's a shine model and it's how you freeze and refreeze and freeze and refreeze things. So I think that's another thing. You just have to keep after it. Like here's, I'm bringing this to you. I'm kind of melting the ice. It refreezes, I have to melt the ice again. So I think, I think there's a, a level of consistency that you have to keep going with that in order to see those tangible, tangible results that I talked about. So Dusty, I mentioned earlier that I'm also looking at workplace stressors, this workplace culture, and how it may affect patient safety. And so there was a nuclear medicine study done that said most patient errors come because of interruptions to the nuke med technologist, whether that be while they're um, you know, drawing up doses or whether they're moving in between patient rooms. But there was, there was some statistic that said nuke med techs are interrupted five to six times an hour and so that gets you off track to thinking about your patients that gets you you know out of the sink of what you're doing it may take you on to something else and when you should be focusing on the task at hand since mary said something about bringing solutions to managers i'll put you on the spot here what would your solution be to this excessive number of interruptions which takes a new med text thoughts from what they're supposed to be doing to something else because they got interrupted. What kind of solution do you see to that, which may help that culture, which may indeed then help the burnout and stress situation? I think the department's going to have to communicate on what they think those problems are and how to reduce those interruptions. Um, so it, it's very common for Nuke Med Techs to have to multitask. Um, that's something that we address with our students continuously is you have to be able to multitask in a department and have a patient while you may be dealing with a family member and having questions from a student who is in training and another technologist who has questions about a procedure that they're not as familiar with. So it really comes back down to communication in a department and how to communicate to those team players um, when someone can interrupt and when they can't. Um, it's difficult to get everyone on board with that situation, but it does come back to communication. So one of the other, or the next point in line, and I remember that the, the chat box or the Q&A box is open and Jordan's gonna keep up with that. So really on this point, I'd, I'd like to hear some feedback from some of you. One of the next points when it comes to stressors in a workplace um, environment, a setting, is this um, notion of, and it's not a notion, it's real, but it's titled like overwork and understaffed. So um, you're being asked to do more with less. Um, I know in radiation therapy, there, there's quite the bit of controversy, and Jordan and I could, we could like duke it out here in just a minute. Quite the bit of controversy over how many therapists should be available for patient treatment. Um, kind of back to Dusty's point about new med and having to multitask. And with um, schedules getting busier and busier, especially now, I know after COVID, they're looking at how to ramp back up. And I was having a conversation, maybe it was with you yesterday, Dusty, and you were talking about how some of your facilities were trying to ramp up at 50%, but instead it was more like an avalanche thing and they were being dumped on at 100 plus percent. So this, this idea of overwork and understaffed, Jordan, I'm gonna we'll play, let you play devil's advocate here. What's the production model behind 
just cut staffing, but expect a lot of throughput from a limited staff? What's that manager kind of admin model there that thinks that's a good idea? So, and I'll be honest with you, and I'll really just cut to the chase here. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll caveat censorship this. The current model is just really it, it's broken down. It's total bullshit. It 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 has played out. Productivity was really a push model in 2009, 2010 as a mechanism to control costs. So you grab the low hanging fruit. You look at people's hours. The problem is, is productivity is literally based on a billable code in your department. The majority, over 50% of what we do, is not billable. Going to get a patient a blanket is not billable. The front desk getting a prior authorization is not billable. Going to get supplies for the room are not billable. Uh, turning on the computer and navigating the EMR, not billable. So to associate everything with a billable stat, we're treating a prostate patient, right? We have two prostate patients. One is pissed off at you because you can't get him in and out fast enough so he can get his tea time at 2.30 uh, in the afternoon. The other guy is paralyzed in a wheelchair. Um, the codes they produce to treat them are exactly the same. The resources consumed, time and effort, totally different. Productivity models based on CPTs um, and billable codes are a flawed model. Fast forward to where we are now with COVID, uh, most hospitals saw 50% of their um, uh, revenues decrease, mainly based on uh, decrease in surgery, surgical procedures. The first thing they go after is obviously productivity, salaries and wages, which make up 58 to 60% of the expenses of a, of a hospital. Um, it doesn't make much sense because you know there's a ramp up coming. Uh, so what they do is they, you know, they try to flex. Now understand, it's interesting, COVID brought out something that's never happened. Before, physicians were more or less untouchable. There were plenty of physicians. I know physicians in radiation oncology that have been laid off, cut back. Letters went out to everybody saying you're going to take a 20 to 40% pay reduction. This is really, really new because that hasn't happened in the past. So now physicians become kind of in the same boat. Um, but here's what doesn't make any sense to me. We've played this out on LinkedIn. I've been pretty vocal about it is um, COVID has done some really good things. Um, one of which is really bringing out transparency that was needed um, to flush out these backwards productivity models. What I mean by that is I think we have to look at where is the money really going. Um, and, you know, you call a spade a spade, it is what it is. But when they publish what the salaries and wages are for your top 20 people in the hospital and you got people making, you know, 15 and 20 and 25 million dollars at the top and you want to go cut the person making 13.50 an hour, it doesn't make any logical sense to me. So I think that has really brought out something that's going to have to be dealt with. I'm not saying you shouldn't make a lot of money. That's great. But at what point um, do the economies of scale balance and not balance? And I think that's what has to be looked at. But productivity has also done something. Um, the push in productivity over five or six years has created a disconnection between staff and the front lines because they expect loyalty. But that same loyalty hasn't been reciprocated. So now the hospital gets in a pinch and they expect all the employees to jump. And that's not necessarily how it happens. Um, so uh, I think COVID's been interesting, but productivity was never intended to be a long-term solution. And they tried to play that. And now we're seeing the after effects of that, which is why to get some nurses and staff, they're having to pay them to, for COVID like $100 an hour to get people to come in. I mean, it's crazy. So that's, so that's a long winded yeah, what, what, you know, that's fine. We, we, got all, we, got, we got plenty of time for you to give a long-winded answer. Dusty, I'm going to refer back to you since we had this conversation. What did that 50% ramp up supposed to look like 
and how is it affecting the technologist in your, you know, your departments and your clinical settings and your colleagues? How is this surge um, affecting them? Because I assume that even though it seems that they're doing twice the patients or the surge is coming all at once, that they're not staffed any differently. So how do they see this um, on the back end of COVID? How do they see this surge and how are they um, working through it? Okay, so for some of my sites, like I said, they had um, initially planned to ramp up at about 50%, and they said that's not happened. They ramped up at 100%, um, especially in my larger cities. So what this looks like for us, though, is it's really a time management situation. For example, a lung scan may have previously taken 30 minutes. Now a lung scan may take two hours because you are having to clean the entire room. Um, the requirements, and you know, like Jordan said, this is something you can't bill for. You can't bill for two hours of cleaning that room up and having it ready for the next patient. So even though they're doing less volume, there's more work. So you're doing more work with less patients. Um, and you're doing more work with less people because they have furloughed some people um, and still expect them to have the output that they had before. So it's just changed a lot of things that we really didn't think about initially as far as contamination in a room and how to prevent the next patient from being contaminated and so forth. Um, and, you know, even in waiting rooms, they've, everybody's had to replace their furniture so they can seat patients further apart. So departments have had to redesign everything um, in a short period of time with very little resources. Um, and this is something that we're seeing um, across the nation. So I'm going to ask a question and get some of you to type some answers into that chat box. And the question um, I have right now is, have you seen these productivity models negatively impact your department? especially during this time. And Mary, I'm going to go to you now, but I want to ask that question of, of the listeners. Have you seen these productivity models, these, um, you know, patients over purpose kind of thing? Have you seen this do more with less? Has it negatively impacted your department during this time? And Mary, I've talked to um, several colleagues in like the CTMRI space, even in New York City, I've got some some friends up there that I've talked to, and they said that they're doing more plus they're doing more. CT and CT never slowed down. If anything, you know, chest X-rays and CT and CT chest and all all of that stuff kind of ramped up. Plus, you add this extra stuff: the extra gowning, the PPE, the cleaning all the equipment. People being portables instead of coming down. So one facility told me that they were anybody that was inpatient, whatever the study was, they were doing as much as they could portable so that patients wouldn't come down to the department. So Mary, how do you see the addition um, because CT and, and radiography didn't slow down in volume so much, if anything, they picked up. How do you see the addition of these other um, guidelines in place? How has that affected radiography? I'm not sure. Rephrase that for me. I'm not sure how to answer that, honestly, when you said that. Well, so um, what I was saying was, so the, so the um, friend of mine in New York said that nothing, they, they haven't slowed down numbers. Yeah. They, like cancer yeah. patients, we cut back on some cancer patients. That's ramping back up. They just said what they're having to do now is even harder. Kind of like Dusty said, instead of taking 30 minutes, it takes two hours. They just said everything they're doing now is even more difficult because of the new guidelines that are in place. Yeah. 
Um, okay, I get what you're asking. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't pick that up at first. Sorry, I was probably rambling. No, no, you weren't. I was like, I was following, following, following. All of a sudden, I'm like not following. <laughs> so, um, I think that's gonna like, I think that's gonna be a cultural norm. Do you allow that? Do you keep putting up with that? It's no different. Um, education is infamous for that. Like we, um, like we lose two or three positions. So then you automatically absorb that, but then nobody says anything. We just keep filling those two or three positions. So as long as we continue to accept that as a norm, and as long as people who are, you know, are having to do more and more and more and more, as long as you keep doing more and more and more, people are going to let you do that because they're going to keep making the same amount of money. So um, again, I think a really great proponent of that is like you talked about the patient care aspect, you know, that's how you stop that. That's what you bring to a supervisor and say, you know, Hey, you have asked ABCD of me. I have done ABCD. I can't do EFG. Um, we're going you know, to liability. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah, no, I mean, that, like, that's exactly, I mean, that's right. Yeah. Give me, give me fired up here, man. I, mean, I feel like, and by the way, if y'all check the chat window, I can't check the chat window because it only lets me see organizers. So y'all check it and see if you can see. But on top of that, you know, they based this, they had this whole model like 20, 60, 20 rule, basically 20% low performers, 60% mids, 20% high. And basically, you know, where do you, where do the mids fall? That mid 60%, well, they always fall towards the low side. You want your highs to try to pull them up. However, that generally doesn't happen because, you know, if we have, you know, sorry Sally and, and Rockstar Robert, um, and they're oftentimes their raises are the exact same. So they get the same raises. So why do more when you can set the bar low? And, and so that's where this paradigm shift problem has happened is people want and they expect this high, but it's like, dude, I'm not getting any more. Why do I want to run that race? Why do I want to push that hard? And it creates this divide in the department. And I think it's frustrating when we hear that because here's the deal. I run 110%. I run a marathon like a sprint, okay? And so when I let off just a little bit, people freak out. It's like, dude, what's going, what's going on with him? Like, it's, it's, I don't know. But if you have somebody that doesn't do that and they let off, nobody notices at all. And so I think that's, again, management helps set that precedence. And that's why, you know, I was, I always tell the story, but I was an administrator and I chose one year um, to not give raises for that reason, because I don't believe in across the board raises. I think it does more harm than good to give everybody the same raise. Cause then, you know, what you permit, you promote. And uh, that wasn't okay with me. Uh, so that being said, I can actually see hands now. I can see questions. So. Okay. Um, one thing about that, Jordan, sometimes you have to remember though, like raises are sometimes mandated. So I work in a, in a community college environment. It's against the law for them to offer me a different raise than like, you know, like miraculous Mary and, you know, like super lazy Sally. Like it doesn't it. matter. It's against the law. They have to offer us the same, you know, of course I went with, you know, me. Um, so I think that's, like I said, it's a culture that you have to stand up and say, I refuse to do this anymore. Um, you know, and you have to, you know, kind of rally together and say that because it does call, cause a cultural divide. But like I said, people will keep asking until you say no. And you have to learn how to say no. You have to learn how to stand up and say, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I just can't. Um, it, I don't think sometimes managers realize that if I have to staff 24 hours in a day, it doesn't matter if I pay 24 people for one hour, 
You know what I mean? I'm still staffing the same 24 hours. So why try to staff one person to 23 hours out of the 24 and one person, one hour, you're just going to burn out your 23 hour, um, you know, a day person far faster. So you have to provide a balance there, you know, what everybody's doing and roles and responsibilities, those have to be divided out equally, or you do get that really divide, but it's so it's a, it's a basic bell curve. You spend your majority of your time with either really low performing or really high performing people. That's how it works. Got it. So one of the other points when I was doing my research, um, there were five different stressors that had the potential to lead to burnout. We've discussed management um, in the radiation therapy world. It was called scheduling, but that's kind of that productivity model because we're just being asked to do more and more and more with no more, you know, professional bandwidth. Ooh, Dusty has company. Is that your dad? I like that. <laughs> so one of the other things that came up and Jordan mentioned low hanging fruit and we've talked about, you know, spectacular Sally and not so hot Don over here. Um, one of the other things that came up was not trusting the person you work beside. And that's come up in several different research studies in the fact that either you think the person working with you and be careful that you're not that person, but you think that the person working with you it is good as you are, or maybe they're not, maybe they're not productive, maybe they don't know what they're doing, maybe they make careless errors. So Jordan, how does a manager, because to Mary's point, you know, if you're paying two people and two people are making the same thing, you expect the same amount of work out of them, but Jordan, how do you determine as a manager, I'm gonna to continue to ask you as a manager, how do you distinguish between these two people? And then I'll go to Mary and Dusty and ask, if you're the person standing next to somebody that you don't particularly trust or that they're not doing their job or that they're just really kind of screwing around, how do you work through that, Jordan? So as a manager, how do you distinguish between these two people and can you fix that? So this is where hospitals, healthcare, and large bureaucratic organizations have been just consumed with bureaucracy and red tape. To the flip side, this is where startups have done so well and it's become so appealing for people to go work for a startup. Um, and, and it's not, believe me, it's not all like cupcakes and bing bag chairs as a startup, but it really is the culture and the freedom. Um, and what I mean by that is the motto in a startup, and I've been a part of two or three startups, and this is gonna sound you know, pretty rough, but it's, it's, it's hire fast, fire faster. If you can perform and you're not on board, um, you know, we don't leave the toxicity around. The problem in a hospital in an environment, and this becomes an issue for everybody, is to get somebody that everybody knows needs to be out the door. It's an act of Congress and it takes years and tons of documentation. It is absolutely ridiculous. And that is the toxic workplace culture that basically um, we have a high amount of tolerance and a low amount of accountability. And when you leave that around, that's where your top 20% high performers, that's if they have somewhere to go, they're getting the hell out of there. They're going somewhere else because they're not, they're not going to stay around. And I think that's crazy to think. That's why institutions get so frustrated. They're like, why do all of our best people leave? It's because you leave the crap around. That's why. And if they can't make a difference, that to them, and once it starts affecting their home life, they're out. And management, tough, because I'm in, I was in middle management a long time. I was a little bit different. Uh, as you can tell, I don't mind ruffling feathers and I know what my boundaries are and I know what my lines in the sand are, but you better be willing to go to bat or you're not going to be around long. Um, you're just going to be the passive boss that nobody really 
listens to, you're just like the formality. You're the nameplate on the door um, because you better have buy-in because, you know, believe me, I had it out with my staff sometimes, but we would go, I mean, we'd go to war for each other. There were plenty of meetings, CEO, board level, executive meetings that I literally never attended because either my staff needed me, the patients needed me, and that was more important to me. And, dude, you want to ride me up, ride me up. That's cool. I mean, but you got to be willing to take that. And I think too many people have their agenda, and it's what benefits me in the here and now. And when you everybody has that, nothing gets accomplished, and that's why you get stuck where you're stuck. So, Dusty, I was going to ask you, when I did, um, when I was doing the surveys and all associated with my research, I had therapists that said they felt like they spent all day covering for this person next to them. And I heard some horror stories about the things that had been done, some errors that had been made and, and things like that. So, you know, imagine feeling like you're going to work, having to do the work of two people. So you're doing your job, plus you're covering for this other person or you're doing their job because they're not doing it. Um, imagine the stressors and how that may just build and build and build till you get to the point you're like, I don't want to, like Jordan said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to come to work and have to do my job while I babysit the person next to me. So Dusty, when you're working in teams like that, how do you effectively communicate that you both should be pulling your weight in that? And to the audience out there, there's not a question about this, but if somebody would, you know, type in some an experience or something in the chat box, have you been in a situation to where you felt like you were doing double the work because the person that was supposed to be your partner, that was supposed to be at least um, educationally and technically equal to you, was not pulling their own weight? So, Dusty, how do you how do you communicate that um, in these in these teamwork environment kind of situations? This is difficult, um, but I think everybody can honestly think in their mind right now the top two people that you would prefer to work a job with and the top two people that you would never work with again. You know who those people are. They have names. Um, this is very difficult to take care of in the clinical setting, though. Um, when you see yourself on the schedule with that person who supports you and works as hard as you and you go together as a team, it's a much easier day. Um, you're okay with being there and you're okay with working hard because your partner's working hard too. It's going to be that day when you arrive and you know you're going to do all of the work. How do you handle that situation? Um, and unfortunately, there's not really a good way to handle that. Sometimes you have to come out a little Jordan-ish and just be blunt <laughs> and just be blunt with that person. You you have to call somebody what they are sometimes, especially when patient care is involved. If a patient is going to be at risk, you are going to have to step in and have a difficult conversation. And to that point, I think we get taken advantage of in healthcare because at the end of the day, your coworkers know that you're not going to, most 99.9% .9 of people aren't going to let anything happen to that patient. So they know if you're going to do it, you're going to go do the job and take care of the patient. Um, to your point. So, uh, and that's frustrating too, because then it's like, you got to have that conversation. Like this is not working out. Yeah. I think you do. Another note, Go ahead. Um, as far as from the educational side, and I'll just mention this because I know there are some, probably some educators on the call. It is difficult. Um, when someone has received tenure and they're untouchable, 
um, and maybe not doing their job. So we see that on the education side as well. And again, that's very difficult to, to deal with and it's a stressor in the work environment. It is. I think you have to be able to lean into awkward conversations though. If you're really gonna be an effective leader, you have to be able to lean into that and do that. Um, Education is a bit fluffier. Um, Jordan, I don't know if I, if, if there's times in, in my work environment, in my work culture that I could never, I could never break out of Jordanism. I couldn't do that. Um, it's just not accepted where I work. And so I think a great way to do that is if I've had to deal with that in the past, I've asked them to review a roles and responsibilities checklist with me. What do you feel are your roles and responsibilities here? And you create a really clear checklist and then you go to them and say, I need just a yes or no checklist. Are you meeting these? Are you not meeting these? Um, so you let them lead with what are your roles and responsibilities. You can counter that and say, here's what I came up with for my daily roles and responsibilities when I work with you. Um, here's what I feel we should both be doing. Do you feel we are both doing this? So there's a little bit of a way around that. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love your your leadership style, Jordan, a hundred percent. I love it. Um, I would I would strive to do that, and and I agree with you. Either either get up or get out, and and that's fine. Um, I think that leads to um, your attrition rate is is much lower once you can do that and take care of all that. Um, but there there might be a time where you have to lean into that awkward conversation, and then you have to go back and develop a tool or resource to prove you're not doing this. I'm doing this. So it's interesting. We have a lot of questions coming in and to the technical guys that are on here. We need to print these questions and then we have the attendees. We can answer some of these, get them back to them. But uh, somebody said, how about a lecture on how to say no and keep your job? That's been like the story of my life because I don't say no and I take on more and more and more until I reach my breaking point. It's like, damn it, I can't do anymore. And I think now I've learned that the, the younger me set the precedent, especially as a therapist, I would do whatever. I mean, you didn't want to come in early in the morning, whatever. I'll warm up the machines. And then you set the precedence. And then, like you said, the few times you don't do it, everybody's like, what the heck are you doing? Why aren't you doing this stuff anymore? So learning how to say no in this environment, because a lot of people felt like, and I just did it because I was nice. It wasn't that I was afraid, oh, my God, if I don't say yes, they're going to find somebody else that will do it. But I think there is fear in that, uh, that if people say no, that they'll just find somebody else that will simply say yes. Um, uh, some other questions, hang on, how do I stand up and say uh, no more and not put our necks out on the chopping block? Um, I've come up with lots of data to plead for better productivity and targets with no success. But that's the kind of stuff when you start mapping out time-based instead of billing-based productivity, how much time does it take for every task? And again, you got to go to that with data. The problem is if you follow just how I do it, um, and, and it's not a problem because there's a time and a place where you got to balance the emotional charge because um, um, that will get you in a bind fast. Uh, somebody said the willing horse gets whipped the most. I, I can't agree more. Um, and it just goes back because you, a lot of people, it's, you know, Adam Grant wrote an awesome book. I'm not uh, taking any credit for anything Adam did. Uh, he wrote an awesome book called Give and Take, and there's givers and takers. And if you haven't had a chance to read the book, it's awesome. Um, because what you'll find is, obviously, we know there's a lot more takers than givers, but there's this middle of the road group, too. And I think it's where you find yourself. Uh, but Give and Take by Adam Grant is awesome. Um, it definitely helps clarify some of these questions. Um, somebody said, yeah, but it's, we're made to feel like it's our fault because we didn't train them. Listen, it's right. more than a job description. That's what frustrates me. 
is you should be involved in the hiring process because 99% of the crap that comes through the door that you get stuck with and having to work, had you been part of the process to screen the person um, and been able to work with them some, you probably wouldn't have hired them, but they were just hired you know, above you and then dumped on you. And at the end of the day, they got to be able to stand on their own two feet. It's their responsibility. Um, and it's frustrating when it's made to be the employee's responsibility. Um, that's pretty much caught up on the questions. Does anybody have anything else? Y'all type them in and then we'll keep going. Okay. So Jordan, I, I was going to say, so a lot of this leads over ethically into ethical decisions, tolerance, where you draw the line in the sand. So what if you're being asked to do something by administration that you either know is not right, you know has the potential for patient harm? Jordan, I think this is a great question here, and then I'll move on to uh, Mary and to Dusty. But Jordan, how did, because this was a question that somebody just asked, some of that's bullying, some of that, you know, you're being forced into a situation. How do you not lose your job? But how do you stand up for yourself and for your patients uh, to administration? How do you make those points? I mean, I always go back to the mission and value statement. And like, is our mission and value statement, because they're always fluffy, right? But like, is it, is it fluid? Is it real? Or are they just words? Is it a dynamic document or mission, vision, and values, or is it just fancy words? Now, that being said, um, you've got to figure out sometimes where you fit. If that stuff doesn't change, and I've been in that environment, that you may have to change your environment. Um, but you've got to at least try. You've got to talk to the people. Um, and there's mechanisms and ways to do that. I'm more than happy to, you know, anybody that's got questions, I can kind of help with that. Um, so... I think that's that's important is you've got to define yourself and how your boundaries fit within their boundaries first. And it's tough because oftentimes in the job market, you're just looking for a job. Um, right. And that's that's tough. Well, you know, that was a situation that we found in the past is there were people doing things that they knew weren't right, but they had no other options for for you know employment and they didn't take that stand so we've established that sometimes our work environments are a little less than desirable um, for lots of reasons be that management be that productivity be that um, the inability for administration to understand exactly what we're doing be that co-workers how is how how is this being fixed um, one of my favorite stories to tell from when I did um, my other, all my other stuff was I met with this cancer center director one day and she was going through all of the great things they had for their employees. They had a quiet room and a reading space and massages on Tuesdays and it's dark and music. And but she said to me, the therapist can never come up here because they're always working. So that's one of my very favorite stories to tell that, that, that the facility went they thought we're going to all of these great extremes, but they weren't really helping anyone. So Dusty, what's your experience in your clinic sites or your facilities? Do they offer any type of stress relief, any type of services, any mechanisms? I know internationally, they've done some pretty good work. The Canadians, the Australians have really implemented. I know if you look at physicians in the US, actually I read an article this morning about an app that had been developed, which was supposed to um, decrease some of the stressors and the burnout for physicians. Of course, we're way at the bottom of that list, so we don't ever get any apps or magic massage rooms either. But, so Dusty, what facility, that could be a whole other conversation. What, um, what in some of your facilities, how are they addressing stress, the potential for burnout, especially during this time? Are they doing anything extra? Are they doing anything at all? 
I am hearing from my sites that, you know, they they have had the massage opportunities in the past where you could go to the lobby and have the massage. But again, do you have time to do that? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, most nuclear medicine departments are often forgotten. <laughs> we, uh, you know, nuclear medicine week isn't really celebrated. We're just mixed in with everyone else. Um, so, you know, we, we may or may not even have a break room. Um, but I am seeing facilities offering counseling services during this time, and I'm hearing that from employees at those facilities that they are offering services that could be beneficial. They are, if they have um, child care available, some of those facilities have, have offered free child care um, to their employees during this time. So anything like that, that a facility can offer, I think takes some of the burden off of the employee. Um, but, you know, it's very limited oftentimes, and especially now since there's limited um, people allowed into facilities, it's not like you can bring in the massage experience anymore. So they're having to bring in resources that would not be direct contact resources. Mm -hmm. So Ted, if you'll throw up that other, um that next poll question, the one about is your facility doing anything for to support you during in, in this way, doing anything for you. So Ted, if you'll throw that up and while that's up there, Mary, I was gonna ask you, um, from the educational standpoint, is the are colleges and universities, because I know it was a big, I know it's been a huge point of contention in that um, they couldn't get students graduated because they couldn't get into clinic, they couldn't finish competencies. So I know it's been an incredibly stressful time for educators as well. Are the colleges and universities doing anything to help out their professors? They are. I think the problem is that if you're going to offer something, it has to be genuine and it has to be sincere. Don't throw a newsletter at me because I'm not going to do anything with it. And um, don't tell me, you know, go outside and take a walk. Okay. Yeah, I know that reduces stress. Okay. Um, so I think is if you're going to do something, you can't genericize it. It has to be. Um, it has to be sincere. It has to be applicable to that person. Um, so I think that's the first thing you might have to do is you might have to go out and find, you know, what really makes these employees tick. What, what just, you know, and that's very simple. All you have to do is ask, you know, what, what would be great for you guys to have or what could we do? You know, they'll be realistic about what they can and cannot do. I mean, as far as I understand right now, we can't do massage chairs, you know, they're usually pretty good about that stuff, but ask them first, you know, hey, what would, what would make this tip? tick for you. Um, so I think the resources that are being offered right now in education are, um, are rather generic. I think it's more of a, a checklist of here, we offered this, this, and this, so that if anybody asks, we can go back and say, you know, well, we gave you a newsletter and we gave you a website. And we, um, so that's, that's my hesitation in that, into giving people things like that is make sure they're useful to them and not just, you know, you're throwing a check mark at trying to help them. So Ted, do we have the answers for those yet? There we go. So it looks like some people have, have some options um, and then more of that percentage has nothing offered or who has time for stress release, like Dusty said, it may be there, but you don't have time to get to it. So I think as we get ready to wind this down, one of the things we need to ask is that we are all very conscious of what's going on in our departments. It seems that it's somewhat universal. Um, that was something that um, Jordan and I found in other things that we've done, is that even though it may not get talked about much, once people start talking about it, they wanna to continue to talk about it because they understand that their experiences 
are oftentimes not that different from experiences of someone else in the same, you know, same work, same work environment, same, you know, across the board sort of thing. So what can we do for ourselves if our facilities aren't providing a whole lot of stuff, if we find ourselves kind of stuck for the moment to where we're not at a point that we can take a stand or not at a point that, you know, we've got the data ready to, to make our, our presentation or whatever to administration. What can we do for ourselves? And I know, Mary, you said that um, you don't want somebody telling you to take a walk because you know you know that reduces stress. Some people take stress and use it positively. So Jordan, I was gonna ask you, um, and Ted, if you can find our pictures again, I was gonna ask you, Jordan, how do you take stress and use it positively and to, to grow yourself professionally and then to be an asset to your department as well? I mean, I think it goes back to what we said in the last one. I think you have two options with stress. I think you've either got to turn it into a positive or you've got to be comfortable being stuck in the hole. Um, and I'll be honest with you, man, the last, I hate to be around people that literally bitch piss them on about everything every day for a prolonged period of time. I'm like, dude, you got to change something. Like, cause at that point, you know, it's affecting their home life. It's affecting their marriages. It's affecting kids. It's affecting work life. And you got to be able to turn it into a positive. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, there's no get out of, you know, get out of jail free card. The world doesn't know us anything. Everybody has different backgrounds. It's been hard. Um, but you're in control of that so and, and stress causes all kinds of bad stuff so we know what stress does you just got to define what your tolerance for it is and then if you can do it you internalize it and not project it on other people um that's another thing is what you're projecting what is your stress projecting from you um and i think that's important but you can't do that until you deal with you we're trying to deal with everybody else first and you got to deal with you. You got to have the hard conversation. Toughest conversation you ever have is going to be with yourself because it gets real. And I'm going to quote a little Gary V here, but when it gets quiet in here, that's when stuff starts to get real. When it gets quiet in here and you start listening to yourself and figuring things out, figure you out first, then worry about uh, how do you fit with other people. So I'll ask um, to, to type into the chat box there so that Jordan can read that off to us. Um, how are you coping? What do you do to cope? Um, are you doing it effectively? Are you not doing it at all? Um, and what have you learned over time? And so Dusty, I'll ask you that question. I'll ask you the same question, Dusty. How do you feel, what are you doing to cope? How do you either get in your head or out of your head? Because sometimes, to Jordan's point, the hardest conversation you're gonna have is with yourself, but sometimes you gotta get out of your own head. So Dusty, what, what coping mechanisms can you share with the listeners and what have you found that works for you? So during this time, I've had to give myself time. Um, you know, so, you know, I have an hour every day that is mine. Um, it's, it does not belong to my children. It does not belong to my students. It does not belong to my coworkers. And I usually spend that hour working out. So um, that's, but that's, 
that's my time. And you have to find that time for yourself. Absolutely. My children are a little bit older now, so I can tell them this is my hour. You have to detach. <laughs> um, but I think it's very important that we have self-care. Healthcare workers are the worst people to take care of themselves. But if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. You can't take care of your family. You can't take care of patients. This is, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but, um, you know, self-care and it's taken me, it's taken me many, many years to figure that out. So Mary, I was going to ask you, do you think it's actually possible? Can you actually separate yourself? Um, you know, I know with us all being in healthcare, you go home and you think about the patient or in radiation therapy, you know, we have a whole different set of circumstances to deal with. But even in radiography or nuke med, you know, with nuke med following up on patients or finding diagnosis or radiology where you see something come through the emergency room or a surgery, or is it possible for you to separate yourself once again, kind of get out of your own head and find that time to unwind and to bring yourself back to level. Is, is that possible? I think it's possible if you have a couple of things going on for you. One, like Jordan says, I'm very self-reflective. I know that if I start to shut down, if I don't want to talk to anybody, if I don't want to, I don't want to talk about the problem. I just let me, I, you know, I try to feed myself this, this crap that, you know, I just want to reflect by myself. No, no, I'm just completely shutting down. Um, <laughs> So if you're self-aware of your triggers, you know, that once I start doing this and this and this, I've reached that point where I have to do something about it. Um, this week, I, I try to do one thing a week in self-development. Uh, and this week's self-development is telling myself to shut up. It's okay. Like if my mind keeps going, it's okay to be like, shut up. Like, just be quiet. And um, I don't think I ever gave myself permission to do that before, you know? And then, and the, I did, um, like Jordan said, you gotta, when this gets quiet, I did one of those sensory deprivation chambers, like where, you, and I'm like, oh my gosh, is this over yet? Is this over yet? Is this over yet? Um, so again, being self-aware, knowing what triggers you, and then giving yourself permission to say, shut up. And to know that when I started to try to transition my mindset like that, I could do it for about five seconds. That's all the longer I could get myself to shut up. And then I got to 30 seconds and then I got to a minute. But um, that first shut up was like, shut up. No, <laughs> shut up. No. <laughs> so um, just, just keep working at it. As long as you feel like you're making progress, then I feel like you feel like you're going somewhere. And that's, that's all you can ask of yourself. So we'll, like I said, we're about to wrap this up, but one of the last points I want to make, and I'm going to reference back to that um, research that was done by Hope Petzenhauser um, about asking students, how did students perceive levels of burnout? And one thing that I was always um, kind of taught to my children was garbage in, garbage out kind of thing. So if 80% of students believe that we're burned out, is this kind of a nurture versus nature sort of thing? Are we perpetuating um, this environment? It doesn't get rid of the stressors. It doesn't get rid of the too many patients and not enough staff. It doesn't get rid of management and administration. It doesn't get rid of productivity models. But is there a way that we could handle it differently so that we didn't pass so much baggage on to the next generation? to students beneath us, to the people that we want to work with in years to come. So Jordan, is there a way for us to halt the cycle, so to speak, and not hand our constant baggage off so that we kind of stew in this, you know, pit of ugliness all the time? 
it, it, it is all on an individual basis. Nobody's going to do it for you. You've got to be able to take care of you. And it's all, I think Dusty said this, or Mary, maybe you, but it's all who you surround yourself with, the environments you put yourself in, what you choose to speak up for, what you choose to stay silent about, what you um, tolerate, what you hold accountable, uh, what your boundaries are. And again, it starts with you. And too many people are looking for everybody else to fix themselves. And when in actuality, it really just starts with you. Everybody else wants everybody else to fix them. And that means you'll be happy, but it may not be everybody else. And I know that's a tough thing. Um, believe me, I have to look in the mirror and I realize I am not for everybody. Okay. Uh, some people, I just literally rub the wrong way. I melt some people's snow cone. Okay. I understand that, but I'm comfortable there. So that's, a, that's it. <laughs> Well, so I don't think, I think what we've done today is just let people know that you're not alone. You're not alone in, even though your experience may be different, you're not alone in the fact that there's incredible, there are incredible stressors in our environments right now. We all kind of have some common stressors, be that management or be that productivity or be that patient levels. But I think we've also offered some things to maybe help you see it a little differently, to help you perceive it a little differently so that we can better cope with it ourselves and so that we can better pass down maybe a healthful, more um, positive workplace culture than where we find ourselves today. So I thank you all a whole bunch. And I thank the audience. This was a big audience and you were very um, engaged and, and responsive. So thanks a whole bunch, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye, y'all.